our gracious Father who fills the heavens with your presence and your power. Even as we listen here and we we hear in silence the wind howling, we're reminded that your spirit blows in us and around us. It blows where it wills. You are a wild God who is always at work in surprising ways. So open up our ears, open up our minds, open up our bodies, open up our imaginations to what it might look like to enter into this teaching and this truth that you delight to reveal yourself not to the powerful and to the strong and the wise and those who have it together, but you delight in revealing yourself to the poor, to the broken, to the weak, to those who feel like they don't know it all and don't have it all together. And so would you invite us into this radical vision of a kingdom and a people who live in that way, the way of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name and the power of the Spirit. Amen. For more than 2,000 years, the great luminary thinkers of Western civilization have been attempting to answer, if you want to just kind of sum up all Western philosophy, it can really be answered in two attempts to answer two questions. What is the good life? What does it mean to flourish as human beings? And who are the good people? And oftentimes, we want to know who the good people are so that we can avoid the bad people, right? Uh, but those are the, the essential two questions. If you want to go all the way back to sort of the pillars of Western thinking, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and the Greco-Roman tradition, they had this idea um, of flourishing they called eudaimonia. And eudaimonia was just the highest state of well-being, and it was acquired through training yourself in virtue. And there was this sort of aspiration for that state of human flourishing um, that was possible through training the will and the desires and your habits and those kinds of things. And you could trace this through history. You could look at the great thinkers, uh, both inside and outside the church, particularly in the church with Augustine and Aquinas and uh, John Calvin and on down through the ages. Um, But we have a modern American equivalent to this, right? What we might call the pursuit of happiness. We might be, I think we're the first um, modern democratic republic or civilization who it's written into our governing charter, which this comes from sort of like French enlightenment principles. Um, it's like happiness is actually written into our, the pursuit of happiness is written into our governing charter. And, um, and, and yet what, what we are after in the sort of American experiment of the pursuit of happiness is a redefined concept of happiness that would sound very foreign to Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and the great thinkers of generation past. One, we're trying to do it apart from any sort of sense of transcendence, whether that's a transcendent being or transcendent principles. And we've sort of redefined happiness. If you just think about like on the ground, just take it outside the realm of philosophy. Like if I asked you, are you happy? You would sort of do like an external, you would sort of do an emotional calculus. Like the last week, have I had more feelings of well-being and, and positive vibes, the way we like to talk about positive vibes, than negative vibes. And you'd probably say negative because we have a recency bias, right? Like we kind of tend to look at just like what's right in front of us. But we do this sort of emotional calculus. So we've redefined it less as how we live and more how we feel. It's a subjective sense of, do I feel good? Just right? Like fast air, you're happy. It's like, I don't know. I don't really feel great. It's, it's sort of like, do you feel good about yourself? Do you feel good about your life? Do you feel good about your family? That's one aspect. And then particularly for the middle class in a place like Broad Ripple, the second aspect is, is sort of material flourishing, right? Are you prospering materially? And that's sort of the American dream. And it's interesting because a lot of that, um, the basis for how we feel is comparative, right? Like we kind of compare ourselves to a reference group. 
Your reference group might be on Instagram. It might be your family of origin. It might be your neighbors. But we sort of like look around us and we're like, do I have a little bit more than them? Okay, I'm good, right? Uh, I'm happy. And um, it's interesting, the, there's a whole science of happiness. Um, so there's a lot of people, there's insti- almost every culture now has an institute that's studying happiness. Harvard has this. Somebody was telling me about the Denmark Institute of Happiness where they're looking at this across different cultures. There's even a genetic component to happiness, right? Like the way that you're wired neurobiologically, some of you just wake up in the morning and you're, you have that subjective sense of well-being. It doesn't matter what happened to you yesterday. You're just like, life is amazing and it's awesome and it's gonna be great. And that's just the way you're wired. And then some of you are just like, you wake up in the morning and you're just like Eeyore, man. You're just like, it is gonna be a terrible day and it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. You're, you could have just won the lottery and you'd be like, yeah, well, you know, it probably won't last, you know. And you're just genetically, like our genetics actually play into happiness. And if we root our happiness in in sort of subjective feelings, we're always going to be sort of hijacked by our bodies, right? Uh, But we are all in on this pursuit of happiness. You can even see this accelerating in the literature. In in 2000, there were 50 books written on happiness. There were 4,000 by 2008. Yale University has a class on happiness. It's their most popular class in school history. 25% of their undergrads take this class. It is the psychology of happiness and the good life. One student commenting on why they took the class said this, in reality, a lot of us are anxious and stressed and unhappy and numb. And so there's this pursuit of happiness. And yet it seems that we can't find happiness. Yuval Harari, in his best-selling book, Sapiens, who's not a Christian, but writing about this, he said, despite 500 years of breathtaking revolutions in science and economics and politics and technology, we are no happier now. Matter of fact, we might be more anxious now than people were 500 years ago. Arthur Brooks, who I love, he's a columnist for The Atlantic, and he writes uh, from sort of a secular perspective on happiness. I don't know many writers doing that. There's a lot of cynicism right now, but he, he uh, wrote this article a couple years ago, and it starts by quoting uh, Hemingway's book, Garden of Eden. And there's a quote from that book that says, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. I don't know of any better way to describe Broad Ripple than that. <laughs> Happiness in intelligent people or prosperous people is the rarest thing I know. And he says this, one of life's cruelest mysteries is why we, talking about sort of the social architecture of America, why we are impelled to pursue rewards that bring success but not happiness. Mother nature drives us toward the four goals of money, power, pleasure, and prestige with the promise that these rewards will bring happiness. In truth, the correlation might be positive, but the causation is probably reversed. Happier people naturally get these rewards, but they seek them for their, but seek them for their own sake, for your own gain, and happiness will likely fall and fail. Accordingly, if you aspire to use your cleverness, your intelligence for personal benefit, for the praise and the admiration of others, or an advantage in work and dating, woe be unto you. And yet that is, in a lot of ways, how American society is engineered and set up. It's the pursuit of success and achievement at the expense of the pursuit of true happiness. And maybe it's just because I'm reading his memoir right now, but in the words of that famous theologian Bono, we still haven't found what we're looking for. We are on this quest for happiness, and yet do you find the more that you search for happiness, the more elusive it seems to be. And the question is, where do we find true happiness? Where do we find the good life? And what does it look like to become good people? That's what we're all kind of longing for. Now, I want to go to Matthew 5, and I use that as a setup because 
I actually think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. I actually think what Jesus is offering us, strange as it may seem, because we don't go to Jesus often for happiness. We go to Jesus for self-denial. We go to Jesus for like, you know, guilt trips and like make me feel bad, but not often for like happiness. And yet the earliest manuscripts that we have around the Bible and around the Sermon on the Mount, this section in scripture is labeled on happiness or concerning happiness. There's an ancient idea of happiness that goes back to the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament. And Jesus picks that up here and offers to us a vision for a happy life. And that's why, I don't know if you've ever read this translation, but the flourishing are you? I bet none of you probably heard of this translation. Good, because it's not in a Bible. Um, It's a friend of mine who's a biblical scholar. He's a conservative scholar. And he's been studying this word for blessing or blessed for 10 or 15 years. And he said, the best translation for this word blessed is flourishing. And it's interesting when you hear it like that, it's like, oh, that doesn't really sound like what I think of when I think of blessed. And I wanna talk about that today. We're gonna be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next couple months. Um, And so I want to just quickly give an overview of the Sermon on the Mount because again, it's easy to miss what's happening. Lots of confusion, lots of misinterpretations around the Sermon on the Mount, lots of convenient evasions of what the Sermon on the Mount is saying. Um, so just the backdrop, let me just throw a picture up here. Um, this is the Mount of Beatitudes on this screen right here. So, um, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually like the Sermon on the Gentle Slope. It's not, it's sort of like Brown County Mountains, you know what I'm talking about, not Kentucky Mountains where I'm from. Um, but the setting we often think of like Jesus at like some sort of open air Christian festival. And it's like Caleb's playing over here. There's food trucks, Mav City worships blowing up, you know, and then Jesus like rushes on stage. He's like, <clears throat> you know, hey, let me here to give a message, you know, and he's like some kind of itinerant, you know, speaker. Or maybe you think of like Jesus in sort of like a monastery, like my kids in fourth grade, their school, they take a trip down to St. Minerad. If you're from Southwest Indiana, you know Minerad. It's kind of tucked in the hills of Santa Claus, Indiana. We imagine Jesus there with like some monks, like doing some Zen Buddhist stuff. And he's like in the, in the quiet room. And he's like, let me, let me unpack the kingdom of God. You know, it's very like quiet and calm. But that's not exactly what was going on at all, right? If you read chapter four in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it was chaos, right? There's darkness, there's violence, there's suffering, there's a sense of desperation, there's a collision of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, right? All kinds of stuff that's happening that David preached on a few months ago in chapter four, but these people were living in a moment. Jesus was living in a moment and teaching in a moment of political and economic and sort of a a cultural tinderbox. Like, did anybody enjoy 2020? It was an awesome year, right? Like, just imagine 2020 on steroids, and that's what was happening sort of a cultural PTSD that everybody was living through. And there were all kinds of attempted revolutions and things happening. And so, of course, that in that kind of environment, you have elevated levels of poverty. You have oppression. You have disease. You have famine. Um, You have, again, these surrounding countryside here around the Sea of Galilee, all of these small rural villages full of disenfranchised, oppressed, hurting people. And at the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus show up and he says, hey, to all of you, reorient your life. The kingdom of God is here. He preaches the good news of the kingdom and he heals people. And can you imagine like that kind of a healer walking through like downtown Greenfield or like some small rural community, uh, you know, out in the sticks and like somebody coming through and actually looking at the poor and saying, hey, flourishing are you? And let me show you what God thinks about you. I mean, it was amazing. And so all these people are coming, they're pressing in on Jesus, and it's just 
chaos. And in the midst of that, he steps back onto this hill and he delivers this address, the first of five blocks of teaching in the book of Matthew. This is his longest continuous sermon that we see in the Gospels. And it's really just an unpacking. And the rest of the book of Matthew is unpacking that one statement, repent or reorient your life. The kingdom of God has come near. What does it actually look like to reorient your life in light of the reality that Jesus has brought the kingdom of God near? The rest of the book is an unpacking of that. And sort of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like a five-hour energy drink version of that. And so Jesus we read here, ascends onto this mountain. Now, if, you, if you've been a Christian for like five minutes, somebody ascending on a mountain might draw your imagination back to the book of Exodus. And that's exactly what Matthew wants to do. He's presenting Jesus here as one who is ascending the mountain like Moses. Moses ascended the mountain to receive revelation. Jesus ascends the mountain to give revelation because he is the son of God. And so he's being presented here as the new Moses, to give a new Torah, a new wisdom to a a new people of God that grows out of the old people of God. And he's being presented here as a rabbi. So he ascends and he sits. Sitting is the rabbinical posture, right, for a teacher. So Jesus is being presented here as a great teacher, as one of the smartest people to ever live, as a sort of philosopher. And people would come and they would sit at his feet like, We don't think of Jesus this way. And and he's not just a teacher, right? Matthew goes on to say he's Lord and Savior too. But he's also a sage. Like if you're in finance, you wouldn't be like, I need to go apprentice myself to Jesus. You're like, Warren Buffett's my guy. You know? I mean, we all have our sort of gurus. And yet, here we have God himself come to bring the wisdom of God, to bring really good, illuminating teaching. And so I just want to sort of like argue that the Sermon on the Mount might be the lamest. Some scholar came up with this. This might be the lamest description of what Jesus is doing. Like, can you imagine taking Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and calling it the, the speech on Capitol Hill? <laughs> this is so much more than that. Like Scott McKnight, one commentator says, this is Jesus's radical manifesto of a kingdom way of life. That is what's going on here. A radical manifesto of a new way of life. So Jesus here wants to invite us into this life. He wants to paint a picture. Jesus is a master artist. He's painting a picture for us. He's sort of putting his hands, if you're, if you're into clay, my wife takes some sculpting and pottery classes and you kind of dig your hands into that clay and you sort, of, you sort of sculpt it and you shape it, right? Jesus here is shaping our imagination for what it could look like to live a beautiful life, to be a beautiful people, to truly flourish as human beings. So what are the Beatitudes? This is sort of his preamble. This is Jesus' overture. This is the introduction to Jesus' sermon, and it's quite an introduction if you really read it and you really let it sink in. This is, the Beatitudes are one of the most widely debated, frequently misunderstood portion of Scripture There is, and there's all kinds of ways that we don't have time to get into. I want to throw them up on the screen, different ways that people have interpreted the Sermon on the Mount. And if we don't understand what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount, we will get the rest of discipleship wrong. And so it's important that we understand. In the monastic age, in the early church, um, the first couple of centuries, 
they interpreted this passage through the lens of sort of a two-tiered ethic. There's the really spiritual, religious, clergy, priestly cast of people. Those are the ones who are supposed to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody else, you're kind of like JV Christians. You get, you know, you sort of get grace, um, and you don't have to live out the Sermon on the Mount. So there's like a two-tiered expectation of this ethic. Then, you know, there's always been kind of strains of idealism, you know, where people uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount, and they're like, this is a high, the highest ethical ideal, and we're supposed to sort of live up to this. The, the modern version of this would be sort of like our progressive Christian movement that's sort of deconstructing Jesus, and yet trying to hold on to the ideals. It's sort of like this post-Christian activism that wants the kingdom without a king, right? That's sort of like that idealism. And, and there was a lot of that idealism in the, in the church, you know, through the centuries. Probably in response to that, you have this impossible ideal view of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, where Martin Luther, in reacting to some of that idealism, is like, hey, let's be honest. None of us can live up to the Sermon on the Mount. So he had a negative view of the Beatitudes, and he would say, basically, the Beatitudes are there to give us an impossible standard that we can't live up to and to drive us to grace. And so he sort of pitted law and what he saw as the law of the Beatitude against grace. And so if you grew up Lutheran, you probably heard this a lot, right? Like, this is to basically show you how bad of a sinner you are and then how much you need grace. And again, none of these are actually completely wrong, but I think they're incomplete in different ways. And then the, one of my favorites, the Beatitudes. If you grew up in, like, youth, you know, children's church or whatever, the Beatitudes, they're just sort of like internal dispositions. I mean, leave it to, like, modern Americans to psychologize the Beatitudes and, like, spiritualize them. Not really talking about poor people. He's just talking about humble people. You know, we're not really talking about really sad people. We're just talking about people who are mourning over their sin, right? And again, not wrong, but definitely not what Jesus was talking about here fully. You had others uh, that, you have other people that see these as blessings, and, and that's why I've chosen flourishing and not blessed are you, or, or blessing. I think the blessing language, it, it's so easy to get that confused with what, with what I call the hashtag blessed movement on Instagram, you know, where it's a sort of like soft prosperity gospel, where it's just like, hey, you're blessed if you have this kind of nice, clean, curated, upper middle class, up and to the right, success-driven life. And again, I'm not anti-success but I just don't think that is exactly what Jesus is talking. I know it's not what Jesus is talking about. And so we need to be careful that we don't see these as blessings to be pursued as if God just is sort of rewarding us for living a good life. So what does Jesus mean by blessed? If it's not these, any of these in, by themselves, what does Jesus mean by the word blessed or by the word flourishing? Again, English doesn't have a great word for this idea. The Latin word beatus gets a little bit closer in which we get beatitude, but the, the original word here, and I, I'm just going to keep it in Greek because I think it helps us to reframe it, is the word makarios. The word makarios, when Jesus says, flourishing are you, flourishing are the poor in spirit, he's using this word makarios. And this has a rich history in the Old Testament. The background to this, any Jew that heard this teaching would have immediately hyperlinked in their imagination back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is the immediate context. And this is sort of the, the well that Jesus is drawing out of in his teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. Isaiah 61 speaks to this state of flourishing to a people who are in exile and they are suffering. And Jesus says, flourishing are you. This word could be translated happiness, happy are you, shalom are you, fortunate for you, or are you, or my favorite, um, congratulations to you, which kind of makes it more offensive. There's this invitation in Makarios to learn to see and to be in the world 
in a different kind of way to learn wisdom that leads to human flourishing. Jonathan Pennington, who I was quoting earlier, who has this translation, he said, Macarisms, this word makarios, if you use these, cast a vision for life that includes an implicit invitation. The Beatitudes are a description and commendations of the good life. As prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers, and his hearts, his hearers, into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. So what is Jesus after in the Sermon on the Mount? He's after flourishing. He's after happiness. Now, that might sound weird for some of us that grew up hearing the way of Jesus pitted against happiness. And as a person who sort of like is wired for a low-grade sense of guilt and anxiety, I don't mind that all that, all that much. I grew up in a tradition where when I became a Christian, um, we talked a lot about sacrifice and we talked a lot about self-denial and holiness, which are all important parts of the gospel. But it's not the whole story. Remember the first marriage book somebody gave Emily and I, and we were young Christians and we were getting married and somebody said, this is a great book. Um, and the author basically had this line in the first chapter that I'll never forget. He said, in your marriage, God does not want to make you happy. And I'm sorry, I've probably lived that out too much uh, in our marriage. (laughs) God does not want to make you happy. He wants to make you holy. As if happiness and holiness were not like friends and neighbors. Randy Alcorn says, and if you want to read on this, and if you think I'm crazy, I don't have time to go into the, like, a theology of happiness. Randy Alcorn's written a 500-page book that just goes through church history and goes through scripture and does all the gymnastics that I don't have time to do right now, so all the receipts are there on why we can actually, as Christians, talk about a sort of happiness that's not selfish or self-interested and actually can include self-denial, but is for the broader purpose of, like, Jesus, who for the joy set before him lays down his life, right? The goal is a sort of joy and happiness and flourishing that is not the happiness and flourishing of this world, but it has sort of a Venn diagram overlap. He says, do we seek happiness because we're sinners, which is what the church often says, or because we're human? Should faith in God be dragged forward by duty or propelled by delight? Must we choose between holiness or happiness? And his answer is a resounding no. Matter of fact, so many of us know what it's like to try to sustain life with Jesus with duty instead of with beauty. And you know that that's a failed effort. Charles Spurgeon, if you don't believe, if you don't know who Randy Alcorn is, maybe some of you are like Baptist background, you know, like conservative type folks. And that's uh, where I went to a seminary that Charles Spurgeon was kind of one of the heroes. And Charles Spurgeon talks about this. So it must be right. He says this, the gospel is also the gospel of happiness. It is called the glorious gospel of the blessed God. A more correct translation, he's talking about uh, 1 Timothy 1, where, where it calls God happy. Paul calls God happy. He says a more correct translation would be the happy God. And he says to Christians, well then, adorn the gospel by being happy. I mean, what's the alternative to being happy as a Christian? Being a depressed Christian, being a, I mean, like being an unhappy Christian, being a grumpy Christian. And there are way too many of those. Nietzsche, writing a long time ago, said, I, would actually, I think I might believe in Jesus if his people looked more like him. And God and Jesus is the paramount picture of joy and happiness. And so Jesus invites us into this happiness through these statements about what it means to live a flourishing life, through the Beatitudes. There's nine Beatitudes here, and we don't, we're not going to do a deep dive, but I just want to point out some of these because they're so shocking when you hear them in context. The nine Beatitudes are in groups of, uh, two groups of four. 
each group of four and then plus one, which kind of heightens the last one. That was kind of an ancient way of writing. Heightens and kind of extends the last one there, the ninth one. Each group of four has exactly 36 Greek words because Matthew's a literary genius. And all four in the first group start with the Greek letter pi. So if you're reading this in Greek, it would actually have a lot of like poetry and symmetry to it. And so let's just, just walk through these for a second. And, and I, I just want you to hear these and to hear how shocking and how offensive this really is when we don't spiritualize it. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. The word poor here, patokos in the Greek, this is the strongest word in Matthew's vocabulary to talk about poverty. There's a word in the, in, in the language that he could have used for the working poor, like those who live in paycheck to paycheck. This is down underneath the working poor. These are the completely abject, systemically, economically oppressed, living hand to mouth, lacking the basic resources to thrive, completely bankrupt, completely destitute, and beggarly and empty, lacking the physical and emotional and relational and social capital. People whom one sociologist, Robert Putnam, says have no airbags to support them when life falls apart. And it's in that poverty that the in spirit part comes in because as they feel the crushing weight of their poverty, literally it's knocking the wind out of their souls. That sort of need drives them to spiritual dependence on God. The, the Old Testament referent here is the Anawim, the poor, the, those who uh, were this community of, of disenfranchised who suffered and were kind of outside of the centers of power and who lived among the people of God as, as the perpetually poor. I mean, I don't know if you've been up close in that kind of poverty. I don't know your life story. Many of you serve in poorhouse, right? And we, we move in folks off the street who are in very desperate situations every single week as a church. Can you imagine walking into a home and moving somebody in this next week? And as you move them in, we always have like a prayer of blessing, you know, just to kind of pray over them and welcome them into their home. And we try to set up their stuff for them. And can you imagine saying to them in that prayer, flourishing are you? person in this really desperate situation, I mean, all of us would be like, shh, and we'd be ushering you out of the room. I mean, if you, and, and, and that's just like, like, you've ever been overseas? Like, I've walked through the slums of Guatemala City. I've been in the trash dumps where people are trying to build homes. Like, if you've seen that kind of poverty, can you imagine walking through there, yelling out, flourishing are you in your abject poverty? I mean, how offensive, how rude, how crazy you to say something like that. Flourishing are you who mourn. People who are so sad by the tragedy and the injustice and the death and the sickness around you that you're moved to act. You're moved to pray. You're moved to repent. You're moved, you're moved to try to be a change agent because the tears create a sort of compulsion to action. I mean, is anybody here sad? Anybody walking through some hard things and know that you are? Some of you have parents that are dying. Some of you have just gotten medical diagnoses. Some of you walk with children that have all kinds of special needs and disabilities. Can you imagine like somebody showing up at your house and maybe this happens sometimes? Saying, flourishing are you in your tears? I mean, would you not like be tempted to at least like throat punch them? And that's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are you, like this word, is just deep sadness. 
Jesus is flourishing, are you? Flourishing are the meek. Literally, this word means oppressed, dispossessed, the homeless lowly, the humiliated, who in their humiliation don't strike back. They are gentle. They are surrendered to God. They refuse to return violence with violence, but rather they return violence with gentleness and with love, and they pray for their enemies. Blessed are you, flourishing are you when you're oppressed. Flourishing are you that hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness. Righteousness is the situation where things are the way they ought to be. You're right with God. You're right with yourself. You're right with others. You're right with creation. Flourishing are you when you ache in your bones for the world to be right because you've experienced so much injustice and so much hardship. And again, just imagine somebody walking into that space saying, hey, you're actually flourishing. I know it feels really hard, but you're flourishing. Flourishing are the merciful, those who show compassion and action, those who offer forgiveness, not just from the bondage of guilt, but also healing that delivers from sins and debts and pays those debts and loves their enemies. Flourishing are the pure in heart, the, the, those who have integrity and wholeness, whose inner life matches their outer, who don't have conflicting loyalties. Flourishing are the peacemakers, those who enter into hard spaces where there seem to be irreconcilable narratives, maybe in your family, in your community. And to take a, a position is to put yourself at odds with either your mother or your sister, with your church that you loved growing up or with the church that you now identify. I mean, flourishing are you in the midst of that kind of hostility. Flourishing are you when you're persecuted for justice and righteousness, when your reputation is questioned, when your business is confiscated, when your home is ransacked by the Roman military guards, when you're ostracized, boycotted, denied fair employment, excluded from social institutions and social status, separated from your family of origin, or unjustly imprisoned just because you call yourself a disciple. Does this, any of this sound like, I mean, like you all look depressed. Does any of this sound flourishing to you? Do you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying? There's nothing romantic about these circumstances. And this is the realism and the paradox of the wisdom tradition. If you read the book of Proverbs, for example, there is darkness, there is brokenness. If you look at these beatitudes, you must first see the darkness to appreciate the radical nature of what Jesus is saying. It's dark and it's hard and it's broken. And there's a lot of suffering in the world. And yet in the midst of that, there's a call to find depth and maturity and wisdom and flourishing in and through these circumstances. It's a paradox. You can actually live a good life within a difficult life, Jesus says. One writer that I like, he paraphrases this, and I'll just read this because this might put it in some modern language. Flourishing are you when you're on welfare. Flourishing on you when you're waiting in line at the food bank, when you're surviving on rice and beans, when discovering your calling as a luxury in some distant fantasy and bringing home diapers and baby formula is this week's big dream. Flourishing are you when you're wailing loudly at funeral halls, as well as those grieving quietly in another miscarriage, those who are carrying the daily weight of depression and anxiety. Flourishing are you, quiet ones, gentle ones who are taken advantage of. And you choose not to respond in kind. 
Flourishing are you if your stomach growls with hunger pains for justice, for fair wages, for every worker, a fair trial for every offender, a fair opportunity regardless of where you were born. If your throat is dry because there still isn't enough equity and reconciliation, how long, O Lord? Flourishing are you when you offer forgiveness when a grudge would be justifiable to those who refuse to write anyone off, even him or her, especially your enemies and those who are hostile towards you. Flourishing are you who hang on to innocence, who resist the corruption of cynicism, who don't find their rest and overindulgence or their status and exaggeration. Flourishing are you when you choose the path of peace, when you offer your left cheek because your right is already bruised. You, when you keep treating those people bruising you with dignity, even when they treat you like garbage. Flourishing are you if you've been mocked, excluded, misunderstood, held back in the name of Jesus when you're made fun of, thought less of, passed over for the kingdom of heaven is yours. I mean, do you feel kind of like the weight of that? That's what he's talking about. It's absurd. It's kind of ridiculous. It's pretty radical. And it's the way of Jesus. And the only way this makes sense, so just like, what do we do with this? Because this doesn't seem like flourishing. The only way this makes sense, the only way these beatitudes can be true, true descriptions of reality in a world where the meek don't seem to flourish, where the, where the mourning don't seem to be comforted, where the poor aren't fed, the only way this makes sense is when you hear them through the reality of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. If you notice, the framing for all of this teaching is the kingdom of God. Starts in 417, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. And then actually the framing of the Beatitudes starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God and it ends, not accidentally, with blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness or justice for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the only way this is, this is true happiness and flourishing. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean three things. And I think this is what Jesus meant by, the, by using this, invoking this kingdom language. I mean deliverance, I mean hope, and I mean participation. The kingdom of God is about deliverance, it is about hope, and it is about participation. The kingdom of God just means the reign and the rule of God, right? The reign and the rule, the administration of God, the policies of God, all that we think of when we think of a king or a kingdom or a government. It's, it's, it's this promise that God had been making since the beginning of human history that he was going to restore his good world of shalom through a promised Messiah and that this Messiah has come in Jesus. In Genesis chapter one, we see a world where heaven and earth are united, they're one. And, and Eden is this sort of garden temple where God's presence lives and heaven and earth are united together. Sin drives them apart, pushes them apart, and God's goal in sending a Messiah was not just to save people and whisk them away to a disembodied heaven, but to actually bring heaven back to earth and to make them one again. This is the goal of the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, and that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are living in light of that future when we pray that prayer as a church. Kingdom of God for Jesus is the space where heaven and earth overlap. And Jesus is the embodiment of that kingdom. So you can't read this and go, oh, these are really cool ethical norms while forgetting that Jesus is talking about himself. 
I've come to live this. He's the embodiment of the Beatitudes. Everything he teaches, he doesn't teach as a detached philosopher, but as one who enters into the human condition and like a good doctor, takes his own medicine. He became poor in spirit, which is why he could speak with credibility to the actual poor. He became one who mourned. So he knew mourning and he could speak to those in sadness. He was meek and gentle, even as he was assaulted and humiliated. He knew what it was like to live as a peacemaker, right? Like all of these things. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. He is the fulfillment of the Beatitudes. He has come to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. So do not miss this. The Beatitudes are first and foremost not about things that we do to get blessings from God. They are about God's presence, doing the things necessary for us to receive the blessing of God and then living out that flourishing life. It is about God's presence being made available to us in the teachings and the life and the death and the resurrection and the pouring out of the spirit that comes from Jesus. And if we disconnect those teachings, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes from the person of Jesus, we end up in all kinds of weird failures or weird self-righteousness where if you're like a super disciplined person, maybe you get 90% of them right and you become self-righteous instead of embracing the righteousness that comes from Jesus. And what's shocking about this kingdom deliverance, which again is the vision of Isaiah 61, is who has access to that kingdom. It's surprising, it's shocking, it's scandalous. Jesus says the overlap of heaven and earth has a name. They're called the poor, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for justice, the peacemakers, the merciful, the mourning. That's where you find the overlap of heaven and earth because Jesus is there among the poor and the meek and the marginalized. You see, God's deliverance is this sort of great reversal that's happening, right? Where the people that Jewish society and Greek society, because every society, we we have these two, what some politicians have called our deplorables. We all have our deplorables. We all have our people who we don't think are blessed. I'm be honest, right? Like you walk by the poor in downtown and you go to your office and the first thought for many of us is what? What did they do wrong to get themselves in that situation? You look at the sad and you're like, wow, man, they really messed up unless you've been sad yourself. You look at those parents who have children who can't behave themselves, and you're like, man, oof, really bad parents. And they had theirs too. Those people they didn't consider flourishing. Janine Brown in her commentary says, the broader Roman, Greco-Roman world of the first century was highly conscious of status, producing a stratified social system based on various kinds of status. Rich over poor, aristocratic over peasant, male over female, free over slave. Various words and phrases in the Beatitudes, if you're reading this in the original language, are best understood from this context and can be described as status language, even though a contemporary reader may not initially hear the language in this way. This suggests a reading of the Beatitudes as an announcement of status reversals that accompany the arrival of God's kingdom. So if Jesus were walking through downtown Indianapolis... And he looked at that person. He wouldn't say, what's wrong with you? He'd say, the kingdom of God is here to welcome you. You're invited. You're messed up. You're broken. You don't feel like you have it together. You you, you find yourself locked in sexual addiction, can't get away from a pornography addiction. You find yourself trapped in patterns of abuse. You find yourself in shame. I've come for you. 
I'm here. I mean, I love that verse where Jesus says, God delights not in revealing himself to the strong and the wise and the powerful, but he delights in revealing himself to the poor, the broken, and those who don't deserve it. That's grace, y'all. That's what we're talking about. And he gives us that invitation. He gives us that gracious invitation to be rescued. And he gives us hope. That's what the second half of all the Beatitudes are about. Blessed are the poor. How is it possible for a poor in spirit person, a humiliated person, a person trapped in systemic poverty to be be happy, to be flourishing because the kingdom of heaven is theirs? The morning can be satisfied. They can be comforted because they will receive comfort from God. The The persecuted will receive the kingdom of God. Peacemakers, like on down the list. Those who hunger and thirst will be filled. The merciful will be shown mercy. This is the already not yet dimension of the kingdom, right? Like, if you notice the shift from the beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, to then it goes future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's pointing us forward to a day when all things will be made new again, when every tear will be wiped from every eye. And so Jesus is pointing us forward and saying, the only way this makes sense is if there is a new world breaking in through my life, death, and resurrection that is a seed of what one day will be the fullness of God. What Amos says will one day be the justice of God rolling down like waters. It will fill the earth. God's righteousness will fill the earth. And again, without that, the Beatitudes are just cruel. (laughs) They're delusional. Unless Jesus does what he says he's going to do, unless he's relentlessly committed to restoring wholeness to the world. While there's nothing inherently good or flourishing in these conditions, I think what Jesus is saying is it's, it's possible to live as a person of hope, to live a good and flourishing way of life within a difficult way of life. Remember, he's talking to people who largely can't control their circumstances. So after they encounter Jesus, and they go back to their homes, guess what? They're still poor. They're still sad. They can't change their social conditions for the most part. And so Jesus doesn't tell them to change their social conditions, although I think if you can, he would say that we should, and those are, there are other passages about that. But the point is, happiness can't be contingent on our external circumstances. Happiness and these, these difficult circumstances can be a crucible to forge internal character and a life found in the kingdom of God. So it's possible to be poor and dependent on God. It's possible to be sad and find real comfort from God. It's possible to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness and yet experience little previews of that justice and righteousness in our everyday lives. And to see in that, not cynically like an aberration, but actually to see our inevitable future. And that gives us hope. The kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future hope. Flourishing is not found in poverty. It's not found in mourning. But flourishing can be found in and through poverty and mourning and meekness and peacemaking and searching for justice. We live in this tension of that future hope and this present reality. And then just that brings us lastly as we get graded for communion here to participation. This is an invitation to join in what God's doing in the world, right? Like, this isn't just teaching that's, like, academic or meant to sort of, like, give us theological categories or to be spiritualized away. Jesus' invitation is to a sort of wholehearted 
participation. He's, he's, remember, who's on the mountain with him? He's invited disciples, right? It's participation. It's, I want to form you into a certain kind of community. And this is, this is the vision. Now, let me teach you how to live this way. I love what Derwin Gray, former Colts player, now pastor, um, wrote a great book in the Beatitudes. He says, the Beatitudes are a description of how God's kingdom enters man's realm and it transforms it. The Beatitudes are a picture of what God's people under his reign and rule of grace live like on earth. They are those, uh, when, when heaven invades earth, it's like God, God's people bringing the currency of heaven and spending it on earth, enriching everyone's life. See, we're living through one of the great crises of discipleship in the modern Western church. Right? Like, that's why so many people are leaving the church, because they just don't think the church believes what they say they believe. And they just don't see people actually living it out. And many of us, we've never been taught how to live in this way of Jesus. I mean, how many sermons did you hear about being poor and how, how to navigate poverty as a kid growing up? How many did you hear about truly being sad and yet being a brokenhearted happiness? How many did you hear about not returning violence with violence? How many did you hear about how to steward your wealth in such a way that you're generous to the poor? I mean, this, like, this sort of like American Christianity, and I'm thankful. I'm so thankful I became a Christian in this, and I'm thankful to God for what I've inherited. But also, can we just recognize that a lot of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are not natural, they're not normal, not just for people outside the church, but unfortunately, even for us in the church. And we have to be taught because otherwise you read this and you hear this and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then we just go to brunch and we eat our $15 brunch and we're just like, eh, maybe I'll do something about that. One author, Gunstaston, says, this evasion of the concrete teachings of Jesus has seriously malformed Christian moral practices, moral beliefs, and moral witness. Jesus taught at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to end this. He taught that the test of our discipleship is whether we act on his teachings, whether we put into practice his words. This is what it means to build our house on the rock. It's to actually do what he says, to actually be formed in this way of life. And this is our great project as a church, right? The word Christian is mentioned like two or three times in the New Testament. The word discipleship, hundreds of times. We're invited to joyful participation as disciples, to be formed by Jesus, to hear his kingdom manifesto, to respond in trust and faith, to apprentice ourselves to Jesus, to learn to be with him, to become like him in our character so that we can live like him. And even if your situation is not poverty, because we're all probably a mixed bag. Some of us might be poor in this season of life. Some of us might be mourning in this season of life. None of us are probably all of these things, but some of us can identify with all of them. And even if you can't, it's just sort of a humble recognition that most of our city and most of our world lives this way. And so there's a sort of solidarity that we say, this is what God's doing in the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live this way. And so we're invited to participate with him in learning how to live this countercultural way as his kingdom disciples. I'll close with this quote from N.T. Wright. I'm talking about the Beatitudes and talking about the invitation. And I just want you to think about this as you go through your week this week, right? As you go to Poor House, as you serve refugee children through our partnership, as you go to Purdue Polytechnic High School and you serve beautiful image bearers there, many of them coming from distressed backgrounds and situations, as you hear gunshots in your neighborhood because people in desperation are trying to survive, as you encounter sad people, as you walk through hospice care this week, as you're in the medical system, I mean, all the ways that you're going to show up this week, you are being invited 
to demonstrate the reign and the rule of God, to take the life of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, just live it out. And just, as you hear these words, I want you to think about where you are living this week and working and playing. What could it look like for you to live this out? He says this, this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God happens. The poor in spirit will be making the kingdom of heaven happen. The meek will be taking over the earth so gently that the powerful won't notice until it's too late. The peacemakers will be putting the arms manufacturers out of business. Those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice will be analyzing government policy and legal rulings and speaking up on behalf of those at the bottom of the pile. The merciful will be surprising everybody by showing that there is a different way to do human relations other than being judgmental and eager to put everyone else down. You are the light of the world, said Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. He was announcing a program yet to be completed. He was inviting his hearers then and now to join him in making it happen. This is quite simply what it looks like when Jesus is enthroned. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this invitation to live in the kingdom of God, to reorient ourselves away from any competing vision or any competing loyalty, any other kingdom, and to come in and surrender to your kingdom, to surrender to you, to to say yes to you and your kingdom way of life. This is the most beautiful life. It is the pathway to true happiness and joy. It is paradoxical. It is cross-shaped. It means going low and being humiliated and being misunderstood and sometimes being marginalized and persecuted, but it is the doorway, the portal to true happiness, to find true flourishing in communion with you and to live out of that, the power of the Spirit, to live a life in community with other people where we are pursuing justice and humility and hopefulness and a true happiness that's found only in relationship with you and in loving you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors ourselves. Teach us how to live this way. Help us, God. Help us to be honest about the ways that we're not. Help us to be a community that supports each other in that work of discipleship. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.